Okay, good morning, Story Fam. How are we doing today? You're good. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the Museum District campus here. This has been our sort of uh, temporary home since January 23rd, I think, is when we started here. So it's been a good run here in the Museum District so far. And I want to say hi to all of our folks at Timber Grove as well. We have a Timber Grove campus up in the Heights at 8200 Washington Avenue. If you haven't been over there yet, Highly encourage you to get over there uh, for the uh, 10 a.m. service over there. They're tuning in this morning. So hello to Timber Grove and also all of you joining us online, um, whether it's Facebook or YouTube or the story.church. I'm really glad you all are tuning in. Just check in on the comments and let us know where you're tuning in from. We'd like to just uh, say hi in that way. My name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story, and it's really cool to be here always. Um, there's just, it's a, a great season. If you're a pastor, you get excited about the things that are happening right now. Um, you know, the middle of July, not quite as exciting for a pastor when everybody's away on vacation and all the programs are, you know, taking a summer Sabbath, but everything's back now. And, you know, we got all these new kids' classrooms for our children's ministries. They've outgrown all of our children's ministries' classrooms, so they're in the discipleship hall now. We've got pipe and drape up, just like we used to at the other building when we were out of space over there. And uh, now we're out of space over here for our kids. That ministry just continues to thrive, and it's so, so good to see lots of great things happening. Great week this week with the beloved women's ministry uh, getting started this season. Um, 200 women showed up for the beloved women's event on uh, Wednesday. Our special guest, Laura Logan, um, shared part of her story uh, in overcoming just un unbelievable adversity. So it was a great day uh, over there, just a great week overall. Our men's Bible study every Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. Y'all know the drill, men. Come on, get up early, come have some tacos and coffee, and come see me down the hall as we're studying the book of Nehemiah every Tuesday morning. It's a couple of um, sort of off-the-cup uh, off-the-cuff announcements I want to I want to share with you just uh, these are sort of last-minute additions to the mix but there's some big things happening in our church's life in fact there's going to be some very big news to announce I think I think very soon over the next couple of Sundays maybe as soon as next Sunday um, good stuff not bad so I just want to sort of uh, I want to quell any kind of tension in the room it's going to be great um, but it's just amazing what we're going to be able to share soon here's the Here's a hint. I think, um, I mean, y'all know our lease here is up next year, technically the end of next year, and uh, we've been on the lookout. I think we've found the story's next home already, and uh, we're going to have a lot of time to get it ready. And so, yeah, it's great. I can't wait to share it with you. I wish... I just realized I've dropped that on you, but I haven't told you where or what it is. It could just be, you know, it could be a warehouse in Pasadena for all you know. We'll see. Just stay tuned. Uh, we're going to go ahead and schedule until, um, for now, until we can announce it officially publicly, we want to get two town hall meetings on the books so that everybody knows um, that they're coming. So next Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, right, September the uh, 28th, and Wednesday, October the 5th, so the Wednesday after that. 6.30 to 8, we're going we're gonna to serve dinner down the hall in the discipleship hall at 6.30, and then we're going to have just time for Q&A and some presentations about um, what might be coming next for our church. Um, what an adventure God has had us on, and how good has he been to us, and he's going to continue being good to us in, in this next step that it looks like we'll be taking as a, as a congregation. Go ahead and mark your calendars now, RSVP for the town halls by visiting this uh, site, uh, thestory.church slash town hall. And this applies to our Timber Grove and online campuses as well. If you're in town online campus or, or you guys in the Heights, y'all come on over for the town hall to get up to speed on everything that God is doing in our midst. 
All right? Uh, it's a pretty exciting time to be at the Story Church, and I can't wait to share more with y'all. Um, also just got word this week, October 23rd, mark those calendars, October 23rd, William Lane Craig, the great, the one and only William Lane Craig, legendary Christian professor and apologist is coming to preach here live on October 23rd. So be sure and mark your calendars for that. All right. This is week two of our message series called Deep Tracks. We're exploring the lesser known teachings of Jesus. You have study guides that you were given when you came in. Those will be helpful to you. That phrase, deep tracks, is a reference to uh, that we borrowed from the music industry, basically meaning that um, Everybody knows a band's greatest hits, generally, like everybody knows the radio bops, but it takes a real follower, a devoted follower, to know the deep tracks. Those are the songs that never make it to the radio. Those are the ones you have to buy the album to listen to it all the way through to catch. And, and Jesus had deep tracks, too. So obviously, he has greatest hits that even unbelievers, non-Christians know. Everybody knows the golden rule and prodigal son and all that stuff. But what about Jesus's deep tracks? Well, last week... We talked about his deep track on divorce and remarriage. That was a tough one. This week, we're going to get in just a moment to today's deep track. But what the deep tracks do is it brings you to a fork in the road. Because once you discover the deep tracks of Jesus, you can't continue being just a fan of his. You have to make a decision about what you uh, esteem him to be, what you believe him to be, right? So he's either the greatest ever or he's uh, just not great at all because his hits were good, but the deep tracks, woof, right? Everybody's been there with, a, with an artist. With Jesus, it's the same way. So the deep tracks really invite us to consider deeper discipleship and um, whether we really want to follow him versus just being fans of his, all right? So we're going to get to that um, deep track for today in just a second. First of all, uh, I just want to um, bring to your attention, as they always say, that there are two different types of people in the world. You've heard this, right? This is a meme, basically. Like, there's all kinds of memes about how there are two different kinds of people in the world. Like this one about how people text. People text two different ways. There's two different kinds of texters in the world. And one type sends it all in one tidy message. And just one little notification on your phone. It's so polite and nice. And the other person sends 14 messages. Bing, 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 bing. You're in a meeting, you know. You're doing a funeral. If you're a pastor, like your wife's just blowing you up. Bing, 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 bing. And really, it could have just been one message. This isn't, I'm not personal. This isn't about me and my wife. We only fight about this sometimes. But I'm definitely the person on the right. And she's definitely the person on the left in this particular instance, all right? People handle their keys differently. Ever notice how many keys people hold around, carry around with them? Some people have one tidy, nice little keychain with the, only the essentials on it. And everybody else, is just, it's just a chaotic nightmare with all kinds of things. Keys you don't even use anymore, but you don't want to throw it away because you might need it one day. And you don't even know what house it belonged to. You got 50 different rings. And to be fair, the right here is my wife, and I'm the left, so it, uh, it comes back to get you if you're too judgmental. So we handle our gas gauges differently, if you've noticed. There are some people that get down to three-quarters of a tank, and they're like, OMG, I got to fill up. <laughs> and then there's the rest of us who run on fumes and just try our luck, baby. Roll them dice. <laughs> I got this. How many of you people are, I got this, people? All right, all right. 
In Timber Grove, y'all raise your hands too, and Pastor Kale can keep track of you, so we never invite you to teach any classes or anything. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm also, and I got this person. Okay. Uh, then there's people that handle their mail, their email differently, right? So there's, there's only two kinds. No one just has 12 unread messages for days on end. Like, there's only two kinds. There are people with the clean inbox, and there are people with 13,678 open unread messages. And, and just for uh, honesty's sake, I, as of this moment, have 10,837 unread messages on my phone. For the rest of you, you clean inbox people, it freaks you out, doesn't it? You just got really anxious. You need to take a pill or something. Okay, I get it. Okay, there's just two kinds of us. There's two kinds of people. No more and no less. It's funny how it works in our relationships, too, as this next meme reminds us. There's only two kinds of people. There are those who say, it's already 10 p.m., and there are those who say, it's only 10 p.m., and then they marry each other. It's <laughs> so true how we find each other opposites attract, right? Paul Abdul was right back in the 90s, okay? And then Kermit the Frog finally this is the last one I'll share, says there are only two types of people in this world, those who finish what they started and... That's the meme. All right, so, <laughs> so you get it. Okay, there's only two kinds of people in this world. Okay, what we're going to see about today's deep track of Jesus is that uh, it's going to present us with the same conundrum. There are two kinds of people in this world and two types of believers in the church. And we have the power, thank God, by his grace, to choose what kind of believer or person we're going to be. We can choose how we react to this sort of binary choice. On the one hand, there are those who I would call fans of Jesus, who are fans because he is in some way useful to them. They find utility in him that is beneficial to them, and they are fans of Jesus. And on the other hand, there are devoted followers of Jesus who are following him because, not because he's useful, but because he is worthy worthy to be followed, and it's up to us to decide which one we're going to be, and that's the, the we're going to, it's going to take some time to get to there this morning. I'm going to have to walk us through the chapter that we're going to be talking about, chapter six of John, but that's what this deep track presents to us. It's two different ways of looking at Jesus. So the deep track we're looking at is John chapter six, verses 53 and 54, if you want to grab a Bible, your Bible, the one you brought with you, or the one in front of you in the chair back, um, or your Bible app, I'm going to be just camping out in John 6 today. I'm not going to be jumping around to any other parts of the Bible, just John 6, and um, so you can sort of just keep it open uh, there with you, and, and your study guides, uh, keep those close as well. There's, this is the deep track we're looking at. Jesus said to them in verse 53, very truly, I tell you unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And he continues on the same thread. Uh, later in the passage, he says, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. It's like, we get it, man. It's a little... <laughs> 
A little weird after the third repetition, Jesus. All right, we got it. Like, what's this vibe we're picking up on? This semi-vampiric, semi-cannibalistic <laughs> vibe. Like, if you've been in church your whole life, this might not be weird to you or sound weird to you any longer. But I want you to try your best you can to hear it with fresh ears. Imagine you're hearing it for the first time. Or imagine, this is hilarious, but imagine you just walked into church for the first time in your life. And the preacher decided to offer this, of all passages, this one, talking about eating some guy's flesh and drinking his blood. If you knew nothing about Christianity, what would your thoughts be? I, it's weird. I got to get out of here, right? This is, this is a little much. What's going on with this? And if you, if you went that far and thought it's weird and maybe these people are, you know, friendly cannibals, then um, you wouldn't be the first. Did you know that was one of the first accusations levied against the church by the critics of early Christianity? Like, like there were all kinds of lies and half-truths being told about the church to um, stop it in its tracks as Christianity spread across the Roman Empire. Things like, well, they're, they're, uh, they're lecherous, they're murderous, they burned the city of Rome, you know, which they didn't, but Nero blamed them for that. But then there were some later critics, like in the second, third centuries, that, that accused Christians of being incestuous, for example, because they're always talking about giving their brothers and sisters a holy kiss. That was the claim. And they call their spouses brothers and sisters in Christ. Are these people related? Like, is this like the Roman, the Roman Empire's version of like Arkansas or something? Like, is it, what's happening <laughs> with these brothers and sisters getting married? So there was the incest claim. And then there was also the, the cannibalistic, uh, cannibalism claim. Why were they uh, concerned about these so-called Christian cannibals? Because every time they got together and worshipped, they said they were eating some poor guy's broken body and drinking his blood, you know, so their sins could be forgiven. And if you take that literally, it's easy to get there. You can, even if you know it's not true, it's easy to understand and empathize, at least, um, with the claim. So I think what we've got to do to really get at the heart of this deep track is to go back to the beginning of chapter six and explore the context. And we're gonna, we're gonna, this is just a Bible study tool that if you're new to scripture or if you're hung up on a certain text, I, I can't express enough how important it is to explore and study the context around that passage that's tripped you up. Always go back and see what came before it. Usually you'll uncover something that makes this confusing passage clearer. So if you're confused or a little, uh, you know, uh, a little bit offended or, or grossed out by this whole eat my body and drink my blood thing. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and find out what led to him saying that. What we find at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, is the familiar story. This might be one of his greatest hits, like the feeding of the 5,000. You've heard of this, right? Even unbelievers have heard of the feeding of the 5,000. It was a miracle. A young boy had a couple of fish and five loaves of bread, but there were 5,000 men, and many of them had families, so probably 10, 12,000 people total, and they were hungry. And you know how people, especially men, get when we're hungry. And so the disciples were like, what are we going to feed these people? And Jesus said, bring me the loaves and the fish, and I'll take care of it. And he miraculously fed their hungry bellies, and the people were satisfied for a time at least. 
And in the aftermath of that uh, miracle, they immediately got carried away. And what should have been a good day instead turned dark. And by the end of this story in verse 15, verses 14 and 15, this is how the day ended. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. So far, so good. They're right about that. He is the prophet, the one, the Messiah. But then Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. So they had intentions that were not aligned with Jesus's plans to go and die in Jerusalem. They wanted a king who would take Rome by storm and reclaim Jerusalem for Israel, right? They wanted to make Israel great again or something. I don't know. Like they wanted to go for it in a worldly, earthly sense. That's what they wanted. But that wasn't the plan. And Jesus saw their hearts. And this is uh, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You ever need a little time to yourself? Any introverts in the house? All right. Jesus understands. Introverts are like, you never raise your hands even. Like, you're like, how would I trust you to raise my hands? So typical. All right. Any extroverts? Woo! Yeah! All right. God made us different. There's two kinds of people, right? Okay. So, uh, so here's what happens next. That same night, Jesus went away by himself. The disciples didn't really know what to do, so they went back to their headquarters. They were headquartered in Capernaum, which was nine miles north-northeast of Tiberias, where the miracle with the bread and the fish had happened. So they take a boat, and they all end up, Jesus too, all end up in Capernaum. They sailed in a boat. Jesus walked on his feet on the water. <laughs> it's a long story. But they, they got to the other side of the shore. And in the morning, the people that had been fed with the bread and the fish the day before came hunting for him, looking for Jesus. Were they following him or just fans of his? Well, it's, it's borne out in the text. They, they come to him and they're like, Jesus, where have you been? We've been searching for you. And he says in verse 26, he says, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He's like, you came looking for me, not because of who I am, but because of what you think I can do for you, what I can give to you, what you can get out of me. That's why you came looking for me. We're going to see today as uh, with many things, with following Jesus, there's two kinds of people, two kinds of believers. There are those who follow Jesus for his sake and those who follow him just for our own sake. Those are two very vastly different things. And he calls these people out for following him for, for their sake, for their, on their terms, for what they could get out of him. And then this exchange unfolds for the rest of chapter 6. It eventually results in today's deep track about eating flesh and drinking blood. But there's a whole back and forth that lifts up, I think, three questions for every believer. And anyone who's here today, who's considering belief in Jesus. You're kicking the tires on Christianity, so to speak, to figure out if you want to buy in or not. Everyone should ask these three questions that this exchange between Jesus and this crowd of fans uh, uh, share in Capernaum in John 6. The three questions are these. Who is Jesus? Why am I following him? And what am I working for? Who is Jesus? Why am I following him? What am I working for? So let's tackle the first question first. Who is Jesus? 
In verse 35, Jesus drops this mysterious, this isn't a deep track, this is pretty well known, but it's still super mysterious. He says to the people gathered there, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Y'all, what I want to say to you is maybe the most important thing you'll hear in this whole message. So it's all down here from here. Okay, but but what I want to say is what you choose to believe about the identity of Jesus is easily the most consequential decision you'll ever make. And you have to make a choice about who Jesus is. He's one extreme thing or another extreme thing. He can't really fit anywhere on the middle of any spectrum we want to create for him, okay? You probably heard several preachers throughout your life offer the same cliche. I think we all got it from C.S. Lewis or something where it says, uh, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Have you heard that? A little bit worn out, a little bit played out, but it's so true. That's why we say it all the time, because he's either a total fraud or he's everything, He's everything true and good, or he is the worst kind of man. Said he was God, invited widows and prostitutes and people turning their life around to put their faith in him, and then he was just a regular guy. He's not a good guy if he's just a guy. He's the worst. And so this whole milquetoast, middle-of-the-way sort of approach to Jesus where we boil him down to something less than everything, where instead of calling him everything or nothing, we just make him into our little thing, something. You know, it's like we just reduce or diminish or, or demystify him to the point of being under our control, under our thumb, under our direction. And this has been my experience through much of my life in denominational Christianity. I've had supervisors and superintendents and bishops and leaders in the church I just came out of, the denomination I just came out of that used to say, Jesus, when he spoke to demons and cast them out, didn't really believe in demons because demons aren't real. Jesus was healing mental illness. He was dealing with schizophrenia when he talked to those demons. Let's be sophisticated. And I'm like, that's not what he said he was doing. He said he was talking to demons. Either he was talking to demons or he's a crazy person. And I can respect someone who goes and looks and does their due diligence with Jesus and said he's a crazy person and I'm walking away. I respect that. But I cannot respect someone who just diminishes and domesticates Jesus into some religious guru who's kind of nice, pleasant, sophisticated and good, but not everything. Not all things, right? I, I, can't, I can't respect that person, all right? So when Jesus said in, in this passage from verse 35, I am the bread of life, this is what he actually, he actually said it this way. He said, bread of life, I am, I am. Which is a little bit Yoda and a little bit Dr. Seuss. <laughs> but <laughs> it, 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 it's, it, it carries a much deeper Meaning, because we know Jesus didn't just say, um, I am the bread of life, I am, I am, which clearly is a, a reference to Moses and God in Exodus 3, when Moses is like, tell me your name so I can talk to the people about you and tell them who sent me. And God, instead of saying, my name is Yahweh, or I am the Lord, he says, I am who I am. I am, I am. And when Jesus says, I am, I am, he uses two different Greek words that mean the same thing, I am, just to make sure we got it right. 
He meant to say it twice. Ego, imi, ego, imi, I am, I am. And then he says it in John's gospel. He says that same phrase seven times. The bread of life, I am, I am. The light of the world, I am, I am. The door for the sheep, I am, I am. The way, the truth, and the life, I am, I am. The good shepherd, I am, I am. The resurrection and the life, I am, I am. The true vine, I am, I am. What is Jesus doing? Saying this particular phrase, which is awkward off the, off the lips to the ears, right? Seven times, he's clearly identifying himself as Yahweh in the flesh, God in the flesh, who is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise and adoration and respect and worthy of following him. Clearly, he is identifying himself in a very specific and intentional way. And I've searched high and low for any other religious leader who is known by you know, the world over or any other religious leader of any other sect or movement who has ever made any claim, anything remotely like what Jesus claimed with these I am, I am statements. And there is no one like Jesus and never has been anyone like Jesus. And I've searched for other movements and other religions that are based around some historical human figure who made claims of divinity that the people believed even after he was dead and gone. And there is no other movement, no other thing in the world that the world has ever seen or ever has uh, seen that, that is anything like the movement Jesus started, anything like Christianity, there's nothing like the gospel or anything close to it. You can take it as it is or you can leave it behind, but don't reduce it down to something you want it to be, something that's merely useful to you. It's either everything or it's nothing. Jesus is either the one true God like he said he is or he's a total fraud. God forbid you make him. Just a nice little something. So we have to answer that question. And once we wrestle with that question, I think this exchange between Jesus and the crowd evokes another question in us, which is, uh, why then am I following him? Based on my answer to the first question, why am I following Jesus? John 6, 30 and 31 says, they asked him, <laughs> I gotta tell you, this cracks me up. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, for example. Like they're giving the example of God giving the people bread from heaven in the desert through Moses as a reason why they have yet to believe in Jesus who just yesterday gave them all bread from heaven. You understand how frail the human spirit can be sometimes, how fragile we can be. They're like, what are you going to do to prove it? Prove it. Prove it. Like, I got to think Jesus' eyes are just rolling in the back of his head like, you're kidding me, guys. Just yesterday, I gave you all 5,000 of you fools food to eat for free, and now you want more. You don't want me. He's got to be thinking, you just want breakfast and then you're going to want lunch, and then you're going to want dinner, and then you're going to want breakfast again, and lunch and dinner, and midnight snacks and everything else in between. 
that's the problem with seeing Jesus as useful instead of worthy. Because when you only see him as useful, you never have enough. You always need more. He always needs to perform again and rise to the occasion. Prove it, prove it, prove it. And it is a, a relationship that's really no relationship at all. And so there, there comes a point at which every believer has to ask himself or herself, am I following Jesus just for my own sake or am I following Jesus for his? Am I worshiping him because he's useful to me? Or am I worshiping him because he's worthy no matter what I can get out of him? No matter how he delivers according to my wish list or schedule or whatever, no matter what he does, he is worthy in good times and bad. My belly's full when it's empty. He is worthy of worship, and I'm going to worship him because of him, not because of me. Now, Jesus' message to the people is clear. It's like, if you want to follow me for who I am, come follow me. But if you want to follow me to get something out of me, like I'm a, a holy vending machine in the sky, then just go home. And they did. Look at the passage in verse 66. Ironically enough, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, John 6, 6, 6 reads this way, <laughs> all right? I don't know if they planned this, but it kind of works. John 6, 66 says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They rejected him. They walked away, then went home, and Jesus didn't beg them to stay. He let them go until they were ready to come follow him for him, for his sake, for who he is, and not just for what they can, you know, get out of him what they can exchange in their relationship for. You know, it, it's clear what he's saying. We can make our choice about him. We can follow him for him, or we can go home and have control over our own lives again, so to speak. Once you've asked, who is Jesus? And once you've asked, why am I following him? The third question to consider is, what am I working for in this life? What am I striving for? So in verses 27 to 29, this is the, the exchange. Jesus said, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which, is the son of, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Classic religious question. Like, just tell, give us the checklist and we'll do it. Tell us what's got to be done, and we'll do that, and no more, the bare minimum, just to get into heaven. They're still thinking about this as a, a self-centered exchange, okay? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What needs to be done has been done in Christ. It is done. It is finished. God's seal of approval is on Jesus. The cross and the tomb are empty. All the work is finished. The only work left to do is belief. Believe in him and trust him enough to follow him with your life. That's what Jesus is saying. And yet we spend most of our lives, if we're honest, our time and our attention and energy chasing after, striving for, and working for earthly food, earthly bread. And that's just a metaphor, right? All kinds of earthly bread that we spend our lives chasing, right? So we, we tirelessly chase after the next promotion or the bigger house or the hotter spouse or the nicer neighborhood <clears throat> or the faster car, the skinnier waist, the tighter face, 
the, <laughs> the, the next big thing, right? The better vacation, <clears throat> more affirmation on social media. This is what it means to work for earthly bread. And when you do that, you never get enough. Remember the phrase, um, this is also from Lewis, I think, of course, it's preachers preach the Bible and C.S. Lewis, pretty much. But <laughs> he's just so good. He, he said, uh, aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in, but aim at earth and you'll get neither. You know what he means? Work for earthly bread. You'll never get enough earthly bread and you'll miss out on the only bread that's really good, the eternal bread of life. But there's another side to it. If instead you strive for this bread from heaven, this bread of life, if you are the kind of person, right, the, the type of person who instead of striving just for the bread that spoils, you strive for the bread of life that is Christ. You trust him in good times and bad. You love him no matter what. You want more of him and you feast on him and you can't get enough of him. <clears throat> then you might find yourself not only getting that bread of life, but earthly bread thrown in too. He does care about feeding your stomachs. He tells his disciples to take care of hungry people. It's not necessarily a binary choice, but we must get the order of our desires right. If all you desire is a full belly, then your heart and your belly, ironically enough, will always be empty. Why? Because on the one hand, you will never get enough to feel full, enough of this earthly bread to feel full. And on the other hand, you will never have Christ, the only one who satisfies. But if you strive for Christ first, you will find satisfaction not only in heaven to come, but in this life as well, all right? Um, so let's get back as we close to today's deep track. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Why, Jesus, did you teach this to these obstinate followers and fans of yours? Why not something a little more palatable than inviting us to consume you, to internalize you, Jesus, why? I spent the whole week reflecting and praying on this, and, and the one word I kept coming back to in my prayers was just intimacy. And how wild a thing it is that the, the self-sustaining, uh, almighty, holy, perfect creator of the universe would ever want intimacy with me, but that's exactly the message Jesus is sending you have to know that in the first century Judean world, the most intimate thing you could do with another person, aside from maybe sharing a bed with them, was to invite them to your table and break bread with them. And before he went to the cross and died for us and rose from the tomb on our behalf, before all of that, he prepared a table for his disciples, a table that stands to this day for you and for me. And he, he made bread and he shared it and he poured wine into a cup and he shared that as well. Why? Because breaking bread and sharing of the cup is an act of intimacy. Listen, Jesus wants intimacy with you more than just about anything. But more importantly than that, he wants you to want it too. <laughs> more than anything. Search your heart right now. Is that really where your heart's at? Can you honestly say, 
that you desire intimacy with Jesus more than anything? I don't know if I can yet. I'm still on a road to holiness, right? I'm being sanctified just like you are by the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. But I want to get to that place where the only thing I desire the most is intimacy with God, to consume him and internalize him just a little bit more. It's not that what I've had and experienced of him in the past isn't enough to satisfy. On the contrary, the presence of Jesus, the intimacy with him that I've experienced in the past will always be enough. If I never take communion ever again, it will be enough what I've already received. And on the other hand, I can never get too much either. And if all I ever eat for the rest of my life is, is King's Hawaiian bread and Welch's Vintage 2022, I'll be good. At least COVID's over and we don't have to do those little wafers anymore, right? Am I right? All right. So uh, it was a rough, rough run for the Christians during COVID and peeling open the body of Jesus. Like, this didn't seem right. But I think that's my flesh talking. <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I think it's about more than that. I think the invitation to this table is more profound than we've ever considered. I want you to consider it now. Your sullied, messed up, broken heart and all of your mistakes in your past and everything you've ever done to upset God and disappoint him, it's all canceled out it's none of it. It's held against you. Your invitation stands, and you can come and have intimacy with him anytime you want it. There's two kinds of people in this world, two kinds of believers. Those who seek after Jesus for what he can give them in return, and those who chase and follow Jesus because of who he is, because he's everything because he's wonderful, because he's a treasure, because he's precious. Which kind of person will you be today? As we get ready to share communion here and over at Timber Grove, I just want to invite you into prayer as we consider that question. And I ask you to open your heart, maybe in a new way or for the first time in your life, to open your heart to real intimacy with Jesus, who wants you to know him in a new and deep way today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this invitation to intimacy, to a deeper knowing, to trust and real relationship. We're sorry for the ways we've made church about religion and checking off the right boxes and achieving the right works and leveling up with our achievements. And Lord, we don't want any of that anymore. We, we want the bread of life. We want eternal food that never spoils. We want you, Lord. So as we prepare to internalize you and who you are by the taking of this bread and this cup, we give you thanks and we remember you and all that you are for us. We ask that you would soften our hearts, prepare us for deeper intimacy with you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.